Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, and today I get to speak with, uh, you know, I didn't even ask you to pronounce your last name, Robert. <laughs> Can you pronounce it for us? <laughs> I usually pronounce it Jirasi. Robert Jirasi, uh, author of, of course, Temples of Modernity, Nationalism, Hinduism, and Transhumanism in South Asian Science. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Yeah, this was a interesting and fun read. I mean, I, I generally enjoy all the books I read for the podcast, of course, but this is a little different from perhaps a lot of Hindu study scholarship. Um, what's the book about? What are you studying? The book is about ways in which religion and science can interact and religion, science and technology can interact um, in the hopes of thinking about it beyond simple and bland ideas about like, Oh, Hindu philosophy says X. And so therefore Y must be true, but really to go and actually talk to some people and see on the ground interactions um, what just emerges from going and talking to people and, and being present in an elite academic space. In this case, the Indian Institute of Science was my primary research space. So you're talking to people about uh, uh, religion and science and technology. You know, there seems to be a, potentially a very different overlap in India than we may see in the West. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, but I think we see differences all over the world, right? And part of the fun for me, I, in the beginning of my research work, it was library oriented, right? It was, I would read books and I would comment on, you know, what kind of seemed like, you know, was happening in those interactions. And increasingly, you know, about a decade ago, I started turning toward more ethnographic approaches. And when you look ethnographically, you see that different cultures have different valences. And that was why it was important to me to go to India, to live in India, and to be with scientists and engineers and actually hear from them what was kind of the case, what was actually happening in India. I mean, one of the really interesting things that emerged from that process for me was that people in India, scientists would, you know, they would agree to interview with me and they'd say, well, I don't think religion and science have anything to do with each other here in India. But yeah, sure, come to my office, we'll have a conversation. And I would come there and then the first thing they would say is, well, it's not like in your country. And I would say, well, I don't know what it's like in my country, but what do you, you know, what do you mean by that? And they'd say, well, you know, in your country, there's, there's maybe conflict. And in our country, that's maybe not true. Um, and then we'd go into this really like an hour and a half long, wonderful conversation when they had prefaced their whole email concept with these things don't have anything to do with each other. And then before you know it, I'm learning about a religious ritual that happens in scientific laboratories called Ayurapuja, where... Um, scientific equipment is honored 
um, and given a day of rest and, you know, usually a Brahmin Pujari comes in and performs a puja and all this stuff happens in a laboratory. And I was like, wait, 10 minutes ago, you told me these things didn't have anything to do with each other. But, they, you know, there's something really interesting happening here. And it had previously, no one had in, in what scholarship existed on religion and science in India, no one had even mentioned uh, that, that particular festival, which I found kind of shocking, you know, once I knew about it. So lots of interesting things happen when I have those opportunities to talk to people. Well, that festival is so interesting, and so, so I think worthy of an object of study. Let's dive a little deeper into it before we talk about your findings. So what is this, what is this Ayuda Puja festival? You know, what, what happens? When does it occur? Tell us a bit about it. So it, first of all, there are a couple of festivals that are sort of similar across India, um, but I've only been present for Ayuda Puja itself, which happens, it's most popular in South India, in Karnataka, is the only state for which it's a state holiday. It's a very big holiday in Karnataka, but across South India, they practice it. The, the phrase Ayuda Puja, most of your um, listeners probably are familiar, will translate roughly to worship of the machines or right of the implements or right of the tools, something along those lines. Most of the scientists that I talked went immediately to worship of the machines. That was their sort of uh, default translation for it. And it happens usually um, at the end of Navratri. And then for one day, the machines are given a rest or two days. If you're really, really extra kind of observant, it might be two days. But most scientists didn't even want to let the machines rest for an hour. You know, they're kind of like, well, we sort of let them rest. And then we go back to work. Um, but it has its origins in an old festival that warriors would celebrate where they would take out their, their weapons and they would clean their weapons and make sure their weapons were in working order. And then it became a festival that a whole lot of different professions would participate in, farmers and, and so forth. And now at this point, um, usually the staff members in any given um, scientific department, for example, um, the non-teaching staff, will kind of arrange to have, they collect money, they arrange to have a priest come, they'll decorate some space, including decorating, you know, you can see, I have some pictures in the book of uh, equipment from desktop computers to refrigeration equipment that have been marked with sandalwood paste and maybe they have a lemon sitting on top of them, um, maybe a flower or two. And then the priest comes in, gives, you know, does a, a fairly standard looking puja and then at the end of it, everybody takes prasad and goes on their merry way. And almost everybody participates in the, you know, in any given department. Uh, it's fairly cross-religious. You get, you know, you get people who are not, who would not consider themselves to be Hindu, but they still come. And in uh, engineering spaces, like in the industry, I talked to a number of industry employees at a variety of local and multinational companies. They do it too. Uh, if they have Western counterparts who are in the country with them, the Westerners pretty much always come and participate. Um, so it's a really, it's ecumenical in that fashion. Almost everybody participates. Very few people feel a kind of, you know, like frustrated obligation, though that does happen, right? Um, but, but only rarely. For the most part, everybody comes with fairly good cheer. In the minds of the, in the minds and the hearts of the participants uh, uh, of those present, 
what do you think the significance is? What do you think uh, is sort of, what is the goal or what is being accomplished? Is it about um, sanctifying the instruments? Is it about honoring them and giving them a break? You know, what's your sense of that process? So I asked people, um, because of course it's really hard to tell why someone is standing there. Uh, and observably people stand there in very different ways. Some people are having conversations with one another. Uh, some people are standing Pranamasana, you know, and, and look quite devout. Um, people have a very different kind of set of modes of being present for the event. Um, but some things that came up very clearly were the need to show appreciation for the tools that make your livelihood possible, right? This is a kind of long-standing, lots of people broadly will say, hey, you know, this equipment makes it possible for me to do the work I do. So it seems reasonable and fair to show some appreciation toward it. Um, and actually, I've mentioned that to engineers in the United States. And they're like, oh, that makes sense. Like, I can understand why you do that. Uh, so that's one thing. Um, one thing that I heard less often, but that was reasonably common were people who tried to offer a kind of scientific explanation for it. They'd say like, well, you know, this, if you traditionally take out your tools and whatever, and you clean everything, then you're keeping it all in good working order. So really this festival is about like, you know, good scientific, you know, uh, success. Uh, that's a somewhat dubious claim to make, but, but you, but I heard it uh, a few times. Uh, what I heard most of all was really about community building. That when people come, when they're present together, when they eat together, and of course we all know that meals are a critical way for people to uh, form communities. And so lots, of, almost everyone said, well, it's a good opportunity for everyone to come and be in one place. Because quite frequently you're not, you know, if you're in a department with 30 faculty members, um, not to mention hosts of grad students and postdocs and whatever else, um, you may not see them, you know, some of your colleagues very often. And so everybody's there and everybody participates and that, that team building almost seemed to me the most pervasive part within science and engineering spaces. I don't know that I would want to generalize that to Ayuda Puja in a host of other places, but it, within the science and engineering places with, with reference to people I interviewed, both in 2012, 2013, and then in 2016, when I was back in Bangalore, specifically for the festival to observe uh, a number of departments as they, as they um, celebrated, that idea of everyone being there together was really quite important. And I thought it said something very meaningful about scientific practice in general that often gets ignored is how we think about community building within a scientific or engineering space. So how did this project arise? You know, what, what's your core interest? Or what, what's the genesis of how you got into studying this very niche but fascinating topic? <laughs> uh, so my early research was on religion and digital technologies. I began, you know, my first book is called Apocalyptic AI, and it's about people, essentially it's about people who want to upload their minds into robots and live forever. Right, who believe that a transcendent future is coming. And many of these people are at kind of elite levels of science and engineering. Uh, and so then I segued from that into religion in virtual worlds. And so I wrote a second book that was about um, video games and virtual worlds. And as I was kind of finishing that project, uh, I thought it would be interesting to know more about what actual Indians think about the relationships between religion, science, and technology. 
because as I said, you know, really early on, most of the books about that lack any real recourse to the actual people on the ground. You know, you, you might get someone who happens to be Hindu, who's a physicist, who then writes a book about what Hindus think about physics as though all Hindus, you know, so that's like a, a term that, a, you know, oh, everybody who might identify with Hinduism surely identifies with that particular person's version of it. Um, and so I, you know, I wanted to see what diversity of opinion might exist in the scientific and engineering landscape. And so I applied to, a, to the Fulbright Association and they were gracious enough to fund me to go live in Bangalore. And the Indian Institute of Science was gracious enough to welcome me, me there at the Center for Contemporary Studies. And from there, I interviewed people at IASC, but also at the National Institute of Advanced Studies, the Nehru Center for Advanced Scientific Research, the National Center for Biological Sciences, and at a whole bunch of independent, both small and large companies, to see, just, just to talk to people and see what they had to say about these things. Maybe tell us about, you, you tell us about the Ayodhya Puja that you looked at. Tell us about maybe the other chapters or what, you know, what are you looking at? What's the structure sure. of the book? So I didn't have much of a sense of what it might look like when I got there, because this is obvious from my early research. My early research was not about India. Way back when I was much younger, I did do, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I studied Sanskrit and I took classes in Indian history and in Indian religious tradition. So I had kind of like a background, but it was only a very modest background to say the least right uh, and that comes with i guess some advantages because you don't have as many preconceptions but it mostly comes with disadvantages because there's a lot of stuff you don't know when you show up on the ground and have to you know ramp up and start understanding but so what i did to try to overcome some of those disadvantages was have very open interviews i would have some questions that were just kind of about scientific practice you know, what people were doing with their time and how they saw their work. And so that led to, for example, you know, you mentioned in the title, the nationalism part. So there's work in there on nationalism that I had no sense that I would, I didn't go in thinking we were going to talk about anything having to do with nationalism. But when I got there, one thing, for example, that was very compelling for me was how frequently scientists and engineers said something like, we in the scientific domain are in service to society. And it was with a much more striking frequency than in my experience with American scientists and engineers, who frequently also think of their work as being a public service of some kind. But in India, I had person after person say, we have an obligation to society, we serve the common people, we're, you know, our job is to you know, kind of advance this. So one of the things that I tried to do in the book was think about how that came about, right? Where does that spirit of public service come from? Why is it so pronounced? Even though a lot of people were like, well, we're not quite sure how to, to transfer it very effectively. Sometimes we're kind of divorced from that, but we want, right? There was a, an express desire, even when it was sort of hard sometimes to make it happen, um, and so for me, in talking to people and in doing more research, that kind of, I settled pretty strongly on the Nehruvian spirit of science, right? That Nehru, over and over again, you know, as a champion of science and technology, nobody could doubt, you know, his position on those subjects. Um, but he frequently spoke in his lectures about science as service, right? And, and a, a Brahminical spirit of science and that kind of thing. 
And so I think that became a sort of pervasive view of science and engineering. It's one that certainly, and I was in fairly elite. I was only in one city doing my, my research was all in Bangalore and it was all at elite institutions, right? The academic side of the, the project. It wasn't with, you know, the really small teaching colleges or anything like that. Um, but the, at these kind of well-financed uh, elite institutions, that spirit of service was, was very frequent. So that was part of the nationalism side of it that I saw. But then there was also the public political face, which um, I was quite intrigued. You know, the, the most famous example recently is when Prime Minister Modi announced that in, in 2014, that Ganesha proves that there were plastic surgeons who could stitch an elephant head onto a person in ancient India and that they clearly had cloning because in the Mahabharata, you know, you have the, the Korvas and, you know, the, these, various, these various ways of looking at a, a, a mythological story and saying it must represent ancient science and technology. Or G, the Pushpaka Vimana means they had flying vehicles in ancient India. And that actually has a nationalistic side of it too, because it gets leveraged politically uh, and has a history that goes back to British colonialism uh, and an effort to push back against the British, but it remains politically relevant today when you will still find people who will say things like, yeah, well, we either did or we might've had flying vehicles. So the, the political side of that, the, you know, the Nehruvian side of public, public service was one thing that was going on in the science and technology sphere. But another thing that was going on was the rhetorical move having to do with the, the supposed plausibility of modern technology in an ancient context. So regarding this, this odyssey of you know, religion and myth and technology in this thing called India or South Asia, where does this odyssey take you? Where do you end up? But what do you find or conclude or argue in this book? What I wanted to conclude in the book was that um, in order to understand religion, science, and technology, the relationships, we really need to look at the genuine practice of human beings, right? That, that people perform certain kinds of identities uh, and that they sometimes perform religious identities that are consonant with their scientific identities. And sometimes they perform them in very different ways, right? That it's possible for someone to believe in say the, the medical powers of prayer when that person's a temple and it's possible for that person to come to a laboratory and say, we really need to do some really good research on antibiotics in order to prevent disease. And that this is not unique to India, but a kind of common phenomenon. Like the overall conclusion is that there is a common phenomenon where we perform our religious scientific perspectives and that there are some unique and interesting ways in which that happens in India. And that part of that uniqueness for me had to do with uh, ritual practices or iconography that's quite common. You know, it wasn't just Ayurveda Puja, but you also see, you know, um, frequently religious icons in scientific offices and, and associated with technology and that sort of thing. Um, and that those are unique and interesting, right? And they're part of Indian scientific practice uh, and, and worth considering. And I don't, for me, that's not a bad thing. It's, I'm not opposed to the idea of religion regardless of what one might think about gods. Um, so for me, the, the, it was an effort to show some of the unique and interesting things happening in India 
that were part of this larger kind of methodological point about how religion, science, and technology interact. It's complicated. Those interactions are complicated and they're messy. And in any given human being's life, they change from moment to moment. Uh, you know, they, they can change when you walk out of the door of one place and into another, right? Some scientists would say, well, I can talk about this at work, but I can't talk about it at home. They literally felt like they couldn't talk about whatever the subject was at home. Um, and so people work these things out. And for me, it was intriguing to watch the, the questions of how politics intervene, um, whether that's, you know, something like Nehru or something like advocacy of flying machines at the Indian Historical Congress, right? Um, that's unique and interesting. Uh, not productive. That latter thing, by the way, is bad for science. It's not productive for science for people to, to, to convince themselves that we used to have flying machines 3,000 years ago. That's not very helpful, um, but nevertheless worth thinking about and exploring and understanding how people reconcile these things and act them out in their own lives. So many moons ago when I was a teenager, uh, I had a high school um, chemistry teacher. Uh, he was a good teacher. Uh, he made it fun. And so he called me aside one day and he said to me, <laughs> you know, I really think, you know, when you go to university, you should, you should, you should study science, maybe even chemistry. <laughs> I asked him, why would you say that? He yeah. says, you have the mind for it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, rather than him um, converting me into sort of, uh, I, I do have you a ran the other way mind. with that. <laughs> well, well, no, it was it, you know what happened is I couldn't help myself. I did my whole armchair ethnographer thing in all of our chats, and I started asking about his personal beliefs. <laughs> uh -huh. And I learned that he was a he was a devout uh, Christian. I think maybe Catholic or some. I think maybe he was Protestant. In either case. He was devout. And then, I, then the question arose. I said, you know, how could you be so good at chemistry and science and also be so religious a man? Do they not conflict for you? Right? <laughs> Even as a teenager, I had this, yeah. this intrigue. And he says, uh, you know, actually, my, my, um, you know, my faith gives me a deeper appreciation for science, you know, and my science gives me a deeper appreciation, you know, for the divine. And so it was a very, very interesting exchange. Um, so... See, you learned something as a teenager that many people as full-grown adults still haven't figured out, right? We have this narrative of conflict that says that religion and science cannot intertwine in a human being's life, but there are loads of scientists who remain religious in one way, shape, or form, um, and lots of people who find ways to reconcile their religious and their scientific beliefs in different ways. One of which, like you said, is when people say, they actually kind of leverage one for the other. Well, it's um, <laughs> uh, TMI probably, but after doing my master's, uh, I worked full-time doing administrative work on campus at the University of Toronto, monkey work essentially for the Department of <laughs> Engineering, uh -huh. uh, computer and electrical engineering. So my, my job was to facilitate, um, the, it was to administrate the grants for five principal investigators and their all, all five of their tribes of, you know, postdocs and yeah. uh, grad students. And let, let, let me share this with you in the humanities. We may understand this, but you need a full-time job to administer all the money. <laughs> and then it goes, then goes to five computer engineering props. It's insane. Anyhow, what I found fascinating is with when talking with those profs, they were sort of, you know, hard scientists by day. Um, and they 
sort of would share these very, uh, you know, interesting, colorful spiritual beliefs. And they were somehow able to, to, to segregate. Like, it, 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 I think it's a little more challenging for scholars of religion because you, your critical inquiry is engaged when you're thinking and talking about religion. Yet with these profs, you know, certainly the brains worked fine. They were fine scientists. They were decorated by the University of Toronto, often had all kinds of money coming from industry. They were able to engage religion a sort of in an armchair way and, and, and identify their own personal beliefs, which, um, through which process of their ability to think critically wasn't at stake. Yeah. Anyhow, so clearly this ability to switch, hit, or change gears is obviously present in various crevices of, of the Western world. I'm wondering though, sorry, oh. please go ahead. No, please go ahead. I was going to say that's a perfect example of kind of people sometimes assume. So when you ask, it's very, 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 very common in India for people to say religion and science are compartmentalized, right? Or siloed or independent. They use those words. Scientists will use those words over and over and over again. Um, this compartmentalization thesis, which scholars of India have been kind of pointing to in one way or shape or form for decades. And then people pretend like it's just sort of that, that that's unique to India. And I'm like, that's not the thing that's unique about India. That's like, that's what people do, right? That's just people work right there. And in the book, I talk about it briefly, but only to make the point that this is just kind of what, you know, this is something scientists will say a lot. They'll point it out very quickly that they've compartmentalized these things. Although then you see something like Ayura Puja, which obviously proves they have not complete, you know, that there are not total silos here. You know, these things, they sometimes the silos come together, um, but it's human, right? And so much of what happens when people do research in religion and science is they're really focused on this idea that people have to have these kind of beliefs that it's a very Protestant idea, right? That you're dominated by this belief and the belief is in per, all pervasive in your life and it, it never changes. And it's just not true. And it's not true in India. And it's not true in Canada. And it's not true in the United States that, that people can go into different domains. I'm legitimately a different human being when I'm talking to my teenage children than when I'm talking to my students than when I'm talking to you uh, you know, or any other colleague, right? Like we, we even, we, we can literally believe different things in these scenarios about the way the world works. And I think that's uh, just a human trait and by no means unique to Indians, even though so much scholarship points and goes, oh, Indians are like somehow do this mystical thing that no one else can do. And you've given us a perfect example of people in Canada who can do that exact same supposedly mystical thing well professors of engineering no less who uh it was um uh, department for computer and electrical engineering university of toronto so some of them are involved in some of the most um forward-thinking cloud computing projects of yeah. the day this must have been oh this is a decade ago this is 2010 um Anyhow, <laughs> I've shared too much of my personal life now, but it gives you a frame of reference. Those, those examples are exactly what makes it so powerful, right? When, when we have these kind of public discourses about religion and science that sometimes even academics fall into these traps and are desperately hoping to classify something one way or another. And the classifications just don't really work in real people's lives. Real people aren't like that. Well, something came out of my mouth in um, 
often don't know what I think until I say it out loud. And unfortunately, it's usually in front of a room full of students <laughs> and people. Fortunately or unfortunately, they're, they're, <laughs> they're just caught in the crossfire of what I'm saying and what I'm thinking. Um, but uh, what I indicated, I said, I was saying in the humanities, I studied the humanities, however bright uh, we are in how we analyze the data, you know, it really serves us to not lose sight of the human experience and what we know to be true of humans, right? What we know to be true of the human complex, right? And so that's, that's something that really resonates with what you're talking about. I have a question for you. Surely, let's say that it's a, it's a universal or general or broad phenomenon that, that folks can have various different beliefs and various different modes. Let's take that to be the case. I happen to agree with that. Um, Yet, is it not different in India somehow, would you say? <clears throat> the cognitive structure? No. I think the cognitive structure is just human. The, the whole point to, that I see in doing something like ethnographic work is really to see how the cognitive structures um, flourish in different environments, right? What is it that you do see in different places, right? Um, and if I ask a scientist in, you know, I, I've, I've never asked this question of a scientist in the United States, but if I said, do people, did people in the ancient world, say 4,000 years ago, have the equivalent of airplanes? I have presumed that the vast majority of people in the United States would say, no, of course not. And then if, but if you ask that question in India, uh, most of the scientists and engineers are going to say, no, of course not. Some of them will say something like, well, we really can't be sure because it was 4,000 years ago, but probably not. But then, meanwhile, you have this very unique phenomenon that not only are the politicians saying it's the case, but actually what drove me to that particular example was going through the archive of a, a scientific education journal called Resonance. And as, you, as I was reading through every copy of Resonance, there was one that on the front cover had this beautifully illustrated Pushpakavimana. And the article itself was about aeronautics. It had like helicopters and whatever else in it. But the cover art that was supposed to capture your attention was this flying vehicle, right? And so there's a, there's a kind of presence and legitimacy, even though it's, you know, anyone in aeronautics is probably going to tell you no. <laughs> you know, they didn't have that. But nevertheless, here's this journal with this art. And one of the things that I wanted to ask people is why? You know, why is it like this? And the answer that I came to after talking to a lot of people was that it becomes public outreach, that everybody's heard those stories, right? In India, you'd be hard-pressed to grow up without having heard the basics of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, right? You'd be pretty hard-pressed to avoid those in most of India. Um, and so if you then want to talk to someone about airplanes, you can begin the conversation with, oh, it's like in Ramayana when Ram and Sita fly in Ravana's Pushpakavimana back to Ayodhya, right? So you get this entry to the conversation. And that's unique and very interesting, right? That, that, that this cultural entry point, which I don't imagine if you wanted to have an aeronautics conversation in the United States, you just, I don't know, you might begin with the Wright brothers or something. You know, you wouldn't turn toward Legends of Atlantis or something, which wouldn't make sense for flying vehicles. But you, know, you get my point, right? So there is something unique and different there. But so the cognitive structures, I think, are fundamentally the same. 
but we see like the beauty of human creativity in the different ways that people engage in these things, right? The different ways that they can construct their lives. Uh, and sometimes those ways are not very helpful. They're not very productive, but in other ways they can be inspiring to people. And so I think that's really, really valuable. So I think that compartmentalization kind of thesis um, and the more broad question of performance theory, right? That we perform identities and this, I'm deeply influenced by Irving Goffman uh, and his, uh, particularly his first book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Um, I think people are performing their identities and they change those identities. There's some kind of continuity there, but we all do this. And it's really fascinating to see how we do it and what outcomes we produce from it. Fascinating. Um, uh, two questions. Let me ask one at a time, just to keep it streamlined. What, um, what surprised you? What surprised you the most about this research? That's a good question. Or at least something um, that threw you for a loop well, that... And it's particularly, you know, like it's, it's kind of, the research side is also, of course, muddled in all kinds of other things that were surprising to me when I moved to Bangalore for the and lived in Bangalore for the first time. Um, because I've now done that a couple of times. I had an, another research project a, a year ago where I was back. Um, probably, um, actually, probably the things that were most surprising on a research level were how comfortable that many, openly comfortable, that many of the scientists and engineers were in talking about things that A, they'd told me hadn't existed, and B, could be kind of politically sensitive, which is to say that stuff about religion and science coming together. That when they, almost everyone, when I emailed them and I said, hey, can we talk about this? They said, well, those things don't have anything to do with each other in India. And then I get there, and first I was kind of surprised they'd say that, but then I'd get there, and then they'd want to talk to me at great length about how those things intersected or what their thoughts were on one rather than the other. So actually, it was really kind of that process part was, was endlessly surprising to me and interesting to see that the, the discourse, the ways in which people uh, manage the discourse, right, that their sort of first level thought is always somehow compartmentalized, right? And then their second level thought is, oh, well, actually, here's this festival, here's this thing, here's this thing, by the way, public service, um, wow, it's funny that some people think they want to upload their money, their minds into robots and live forever. Um, you know, we'd have easily, you know, lots of, so that was, that was really interesting to me. In an individual data sense, the most fascinating thing to me, um, the most fascinating datum was Ayutopoja which was so interesting to me that I was fortunately the American Academy of Religion graciously funded a collaborative project with Dr. Rennie Thomas, who's at Jesus and Mary College, uh, part of the University of Delhi. And he and I spent, well, we went to, when I went to Bangalore for Ayurapuja, Rennie came with me. He came down from Delhi. I came from New York. We met up there and, uh, and we collaborated then. So Ayurapuja was so fascinating that I wanted to do more. I wanted to be able to see it because when I was living in Bangalore the first time I had missed it. And so I could only hear what people had to say about it. But so that festival I find really, really, really interesting. Um, and in delving into the research found that people were talking about it a hundred years ago and then they just stopped, right? You can go back a hundred years ago and people mention it, 
oh, you know, scribes bless their pens on this day, right? And then that was the end of it. <laughs> Everybody does like a little thing and that's the end of it. And then nobody really talked about it for a hundred years, basically. And it was so curious to me to go, this is a fascinating mixture of religion, science, and technology. Why is it happening? What does it do in the lives of people? So that was, you know, that remains fun for me. Ayurapuja remains exciting for me in election. I hope a whole bunch of other people are going to write a whole bunch of other papers on that festival because there are things like gender dynamics and socioeconomic dynamics and all kinds of things that I haven't had the time to research and I think would make for really fascinating um, fieldwork by other scholars. So who then, who then might be interested in your book, whether from an academic perspective or, you know, so you get what I'm asking, like who... Who might benefit from reading this work, do you think? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, none of us I wrote, do. I wrote it. Don't read it. Right? I, you know, yeah. so, um, so what Robert means is that anyone interested in Hindu studies at large, yeah. Yeah. Uh, people interested in science and technology. Uh, no. Yeah, I would hope, you know, especially in my own little subdomain of religion, science, and technology, uh, I think there's a lot here, both from individual facts about what's going on on the ground in India and also methodologically, I think would be valuable to people. People who are scholars of contemporary um, South Asian life, you know, Indian life are going to be much more interested than someone say who is inv invested in historical research, right? Cause there's, you know, I'm not an historian. There is some effort at some light archival work and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I don't have much to say about Ayurapuja, for example, in the year 900 of the Common Era. In fact, I don't have anything to say about that. So I would be not, it's probably not for those people, but it probably is for people who want to understand a little bit more about the contemporary social dynamics of India, especially given the growth of, you know, the, the massive public investment, corporate investment, and public emotional investment in science and technology in India over these past decades, you know, that, that most people now kind of think about, you know, you think people think of Bangalore as like a tech city and what have you. That's part of its identity now. So I would hope that a lot of people who are interested in contemporary Indian life would find this an interesting part of that, right? Within the broad scope of what's going on in India, it's a big place with a lot of different people doing a lot of different things, but part of what's happening is happening at kind of elite scientific levels. And I would hope that people would find this pretty uh, intriguing. You know, in terms of, in terms of Ayodhya Puja, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, you know, much of what you say or, or much of what I corroborate with my own anecdotes about, you know, people having various parts of self and various um, uh, beliefs that they hold in tandem uh, everywhere, you know, uh, educated, Western, what, whatever whatever bucket you want to put them in. This is something that's pervasive in yeah. the human experience. Nevertheless, the Ayodhya Puja, I think, is uniquely Indian. Like, there's something about yeah. that process that I can't see happening anywhere else on the globe. <laughs> well, so, so one of the things that I would love to see more of in studies of religion, science, and technology is real and effective ethnographic work. And I'd like to see parody. Quite frankly, I think Indian scholars should be in the United States going to MIT or Caltech or whatever else and watching and talking to people. And, Cause you know, if an American goes to MIT, that person has one set of kind of cultural predispositions and maybe misses some stuff going on at MIT that someone from India or China or, you know, somewhere in Africa or whatever would notice and say, Hey, that's 
surprising to me. Um, so I don't really, you know, what happens, does anyone have a, a, a corollary to Ayurapuja in sub-Saharan Africa? I have absolutely no idea because I don't think anybody's ever asked that question. And I would like to know more about what's going on there. But I do think Ayurapuja is one of those examples of how when we do on the ground research, right, when we're looking for empirical data that come directly from people, that we come up with really cool stuff, right? Really fascinating and interesting moments in the human experience. And so Ayuda Puja may in fact be, and it's core, you know, there are, there are people who do something very similar for Dasara and for Vishvakarma Puja um, and um, sometimes as part of Durga Puja, but not actually as Ayuda Puja. Like, so there, you know, there are some other places in India where you get a very similar kind of event. Um, but it, that, that phenomenon may in fact be unique to India, that particular kind of ritual observance that so beautifully blends social life, religious thought and practice, technological um, implementation, and scientific thinking all into one little package, even if it's just one day out of the year, even if tomorrow you put it all behind you and you go back to business as usual. For that one moment, there's something really fascinating happening there. And it might be, it might in fact be uniquely Indian. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Was there anything else about the book that you wanted to share today? Um, yeah, I guess I'll real quick put a plug in for the second to last chapter, which, is kind of, which deals with the question of transhumanism and all those early things in my career about mind uploading and whatever else. I actually have a whole new book following up on that chapter uh, that, that tries to deal with questions like AI in India. Um, but, but that's another place where we see some interesting we see ideas about technology moving. And that's another thing that people should pay attention to is how ideas about culture, it's not just that we export Netflix, we export ideas about Netflix, right? And then they get modified when they come back, right? There's a global exchange of ideas and science, technology, and culture, all these things are mixing together. So as a technology like artificial intelligence develops in India, that affects the way people think about artificial intelligence everywhere, right? And I think one of the parts of this kind of research that's so fun and fascinating for me is watching the global movement, right? As we all kind of struggle toward understanding the world we're living in. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Robert. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you um, so much. Thank you for the invitation and the fun conversation. Hey, you know, how else would I pass the time? I would collect dust otherwise, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been uh, talking about temples of modernity, nationalism, Hinduism, and transhumanism in South Indian science. A fascinating read. Until next time, keep listening, keep reading, stay safe, and keep contemplating the intersection of the sacred and the technological. Take care.